Let's pray. Almighty God, you are seated on your throne. What could you possibly want or need from us? And yet you are pleased to receive the gifts of your people, and we pray that each gift might be used for the purposes of your kingdom in this generation. And now, as we turn once again to your holy word, we ask again for rich gifts from you. We ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better and that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Grant us that prayer, loving Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it really was a titanic struggle, wasn't it? I know the, uh, the result of three sets to love doesn't really tell the whole story. There you had two well-matched young men, fit and very skillful, facing one another, each on one, uh, opposite one another, uh, firing what looked for all the world to me like hand grenades at one another, um, over this barrier. Have you ever wondered about a tennis net? What's the point of that? He sort of gets in the way. They keep hitting it, and they keep losing points because of it. Um, and I'm sure it must have occurred to you that maybe, um, you know, they'd gotten a lot better without the net, but then, of course, it wouldn't be near so much like a game of tennis, would it? Um, but it really was a titanic struggle, but, of course, it was just a game. And, of course, at the end of that titanic struggle, uh, the two uh, contestants could embrace one another and say very nice things about one another because it was just a game. And yet, if you were to ask Novak Djokovic uh, why he could be so calm during at least the first three of those match points that were against him that he resisted, he would tell you about his upbringing in Belgrade when, as a 12-year-old, he was subject to nightly bombing and had to hide with his, I think, his grandfather in an underground shelter. He knew real conflict that wasn't just a game. And then we think over down in South Africa of Nelson Mandela, that frail old statesman lying in hospital on life support. And while he does so, his family are feuding over his legacy and, as far as I can tell, over his money too. To the extent that three of his dead children have been dug up and reburied somewhere else in the midst of nobility feuding and conflict. In Egypt, just one year after that country's first democratic elections, its prime minister is in detention. The country in turmoil, uh, dozens killed and hundreds injured. The population sharply divided between supporters of the ex-prime minister and those who forced him from office. In Syria, more conflict, with 90,000 people having lost their lives in just two years. And then think of the tensions between North and South Korea, between India and Pakistan, between Shia and Sunni Muslims, uh, and tensions right around the world continue to run high. 
And then what about all of those little conflicts and alienations that we ourselves experience, all of us from time to time, and yet they're not little to those to whom they can cause untold pain and anguish. In, uh, uh, I have been blessed to be a member of one of the most loving uh, and supportive, wider, extended families that you could imagine. And yet even within my family, there is one person I can think of who cannot bear to be in the same room as another member of my family. We have uh, a young friend of our family who has just two weeks ago given birth to a bonny baby boy. But because her own parents split up uh, years ago acrimoniously, uh, and uh, so the young mother's own mother has asked if she can see this newborn baby, and the answer at the moment is no, you can't. And maybe as I'm talking, just mentioning those uh, so-called smaller alienations and griefs and conflicts, maybe you're thinking too of sadnesses in your own life, in your own family, in your own work situation, ways, experiences that you had perhaps in school, and have not even some of us not only been the victims of such discomfort and such hurt, but sometimes the culprits, the perpetrators too, let's be honest. If you've ever ever experienced bullying at school, conflict at work, feuding within your own family, hostility between neighbours, ever felt like an outsider, then you know something of the pain of hostility, real hostility and alienation, the kind that is not a game, but is for real life. It is so prevalent at the global level and at the personal level. Who can bridge these troubled waters? Rarely Rarely comest thou, spirit of reconciliation. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, where we have heard, and now we will, I shall attempt to speak about just such a spirit of reconciliation. It was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. Uh, page 1174 in the Church Bible. In many ways, this passage is parallel to the passage that we considered together, if you hear, last Sunday evening, verses 1 to, uh, te- uh, 1 to 10. Um, in both passages, a great transformation is being spoken of. And the transformation in verses 1 to 10 was from death to life. You were dead, says the apostle to his his readers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now in Christ you have been made alive. A uh, transformation from death to life. But now this parallel uh, transformation, the same transformation, but now spoken of in different terms, different words, now moving the discussion on somewhat, is a transformation from alienation to reconciliation. And just as the passage last uh, Sunday evening went back, the transformation from death to life goes back to chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20, so Our passage tonight harks back to what Paul has already said in in his great song of praise in chapter 1. Please uh, turn just for a moment back to chapter 1 and verse 10, where Paul um, says 
that God's purpose in Christ to be put into effect in the fullness of the times, because we cannot accept uh, uh, the translation in the NIV, as you've heard Alan explain in uh, uh, weeks gone by, to be put in effect in the, uh, in the fullness of the times, um, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. To bring all things together under one head. Now that's reconciliation, is it not? That's reconciling all things. God reconciling all things under this one head in Christ. So now Paul is picking up this theme of bringing things together, bringing people together specifically. And Paul deals first of all, now back in chapter 2 and, the verse, uh, and verses 11 and following, deals with the alienation which God has been dealing with. And the alienation, Paul describes in terms of the alienation between Jewish people and Gentile people. This was an alienation to to beat all other alienations. This was racism at its boldest and and, 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 and brashest. If If you can beat that alienation, you should be able to beat any alienation. The alienation between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. A pious Jew would thank God every morning that he had not been born a Gentile. If a Jewish boy fell in love with a Gentile girl and they became engaged, the boy's parents would make preparations, not for a wedding ceremony, but for that boy's funeral. So badly did they regard any wedding, any marriage between a Jew and a Gentile. It was not even lawful to render help to, uh, for a, a Jewish midwife to render help to a Gentile woman in childbirth, for that would be to bring just another Gentile into the world. And the feeling was mutual. Gentiles often argued that Jews had been made simply to fuel the fires of hell. It was a deep-seated animosity and antagonism. And there was in the temple in Jerusalem a standing physical sign or symbol of this alienation, a dividing wall uh, which separated um, uh, Jewish people who could go right in and meet with their God and all others, the Gentiles. Uh, the Gentile. It was only four and a half or five weeks, high, uh, five, uh, four and a half or five uh, uh, feet high, but no Gentile was allowed to proceed beyond that wall. In fact, there were, I think, 13 uh, notices around the wall saying, in effect, if you're a Gentile, trespassers, not so much trespassers will be uh, prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Paul, only a few years, about three years previously, had run into trouble in just such a way. He had been nearly lynched by an angry Jewish mob who thought that he had taken a Gentile, an Ephesian, no less, named Trophimus, with him into the temple. That's recorded in Acts 21. So Paul and probably his readers knew all about this animosity, this wall, this barrier, this dividing wall. And then in verse 12, Paul enters into a five-fold description of the effects of this alienation between Jew and Gentile. 
particularly from uh, describing it from the Gentile point of view, what they were cut off from, what they annihilated from. So first of all, Gentiles were separate from Christ. You see that in verse 12. That is to say, they were without the hope of a Messiah. Jews could look forward to the great day when God would send a saviour, a Messiah, but the Gentiles had no such hope. Whereas the Jews clung to the hope of a better day, a day when the Messiah, the Christ, would reign, the Gentiles had no such hope. Second aspect of this alienation, Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They had no place amongst God's chosen people. Thirdly, Gentiles were strangers or foreigners to the covenants of promise. Do you see that too in uh, verse 12? Now, the essence of the covenant, this is a hugely important idea in the Bible generally, in the Old Testament in particular. The essence of of the covenant was this. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. What a wonderful covenant for a God to enter into with his people. And the Gentiles were not part of that. They might have known, if faithful Jews had told them, that they were bound up in the promises. The promise was given centuries before to Abraham, that in Abraham's seed, all families, all nations of the earth would be blessed. But they didn't know that. They were strangers to that promise. And they were outside those covenants. And fourthly, the Gentiles were, Paul says, without hope. What a dreadful thing it is to be without hope. And uh, Richard has prayed somewhat of those in our own neighbourhood who have very little to hope for uh, or in. And certainly this would have been true generally of, uh, of uh, of, of, of the Greeks. The ancient Greeks had essentially a cyclical or cyclical view of history. Everything went round, and if Greeks uh, thought about uh, this, they would tend to look back to some golden age, again, with little to look forward to. And so they were without hope. And then fifthly, Paul says of this alienation that Gentiles were without God in the world, without God in the world. Now, of course, the Gentiles were not without their gods, In fact, some Greeks even today worship their ancient gods. They congregate in their thousands around the uh, the foot of Mount Olympus and uh, and worship Prometheus and uh, other heroes and other gods and so on. And uh, they still think that Christianity as an alien religion, they want to go back to their old paganisms. No, Greeks then and now have and had uh, their, their gods, but they were without knowledge or experience of the one true and living God. And the same can be said of multitudes today who have a religion or have a spirituality but know not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There there you have then a five-fold description of the alienation that Gentiles experienced. They were without Israel's Messiah, without Israel's community, without Israel's promises, without Israel's hope, without Israel's God. They were, in the uh, succinct summary of William Hendrickson, one of the commentators, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. 
And you'll notice, I hope, that this is a double alienation. They were not only alienated from the people of God, but alienated from God himself. Well, there is much else we could say about what Paul says about this alienation, one of which is what privileges have been given to God's ancient people, the Jewish people, that uh, the Gentile people could experience such alienation from those promises, um, from all of those offers of life. But I want to move on from that picture of abject alienation to the picture now of what God has done about it. For we read that we, they, have been reconciled. In verse 4, we had a great turning point last Sunday evening. But God. And now in verse 13, we have a similar turning point. But now. Turning from, uh, from alienation to what God has done about that alienation. And once again, it seems to me that we have a, a five-fold description of what God has achieved in Christ in order to achieve reconciliation out of alienation. Will you look with me at verse 14, at the first of these things that God has done in Christ. First of all, then, in verse 14, by Christ, the barrier has been removed. And that barrier being removed may be an allusion back to that dividing wall of which I spoke a few moments ago. In order for Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled, that wall had to be destroyed, figuratively speaking. And this Jesus did on the cross. When he died, remember the veil of the temple was literally torn in two. And this wall of separation was figuratively torn down. By Christ, the barrier has been removed. But now secondly, in Christ, one new humanity has been created. That's in verse 15. Do you see that? Do you see the Bible arithmetic going on here? One plus one equals one. Uh, An ancient uh, Christian father uh, and preacher called Chrysostom, so-called because he was golden-mouthed, he was so eloquent, had this picture of what God has done to bring Jew, Jewish believers and Gentile believers together. He said, well, God, uh, well, there was a silver statue and there was a copper statue and God has melded both together and made out of them a golden statue. One plus one equals one new, what in the NIV we have one new man, I think better understood as one new humanity. What we have here, if I can just quickly say, is not assimilation. Paul had to deal with this somewhat in his letter to the Galatians. It's not about um, uh, Gentile believers becoming Jews in order to fully uh, follow and serve God. It's not assimilation. But neither is it replacement. Paul is not saying, Paul has spoken in such, um, such wonderful terms about the privileges that the Jews had had, He's not talking about replacement. He's not saying, well, you can forget all about the Old Testament, all about the Jews, and all about the promises, and all about the covenants now. The Christian church replaces the Jews in God's, um, in God's affections and in God's purposes. That's not the case either. Read the, uh, uh, some of the later chapters of Romans to see how strongly Paul believed that God still had a purpose for Jews in Christ. So it's not assimilation or replacement 
but it is a single new humanity, the followers of Jesus Christ, which, have now, which has now been created. That's the second thing that's been done to effect this, this reconciliation. The third thing that has been done is through the cross of Christ, hostility has been destroyed. That's in verse 16. Through the cross of Christ, hostility has been destroyed. Abolishing in his flesh the law. That's quite a, an odd thing to think about what Paul means when he says that Christ has abolished the law. Has he uh, because Paul will go on to actually quote uh, the, Ten Com- uh, the Ten Commandments uh, later in Ephesians. And he says elsewhere in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So isn't it as though Paul is saying, well, forget all about that now. But there is a, a sense, a critical sense, in which the, the law has been destroyed. And it's, it, it at least includes this that the law has been destroyed as our accuser. Its demands have been satisfied. Its debt has been paid. Its curse has been removed. As far as the law is concerned, Paul will say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, as far as the law is concerned, I have been crucified with Christ. The law can do no more harm to Christ because Christ is dead. I am dead too and therefore dead to the law. Through the cross of Christ, hostility has been destroyed. Now, fourthly, by Christ, peace has been proclaimed. That's verse 17. In fact, Paul says Jesus Christ is our peace, verse 14. He made peace, verse 15, and he preached peace, verse 17. When you think about the all-embracing nature of the experience of peace, that is preached and purchased and brought and given, that shalom, that wholeness that God brings in Christ. It is a wonderful thing for Christ to be and to make and to proclaim peace. And the fifth thing that's been achieved, according to Paul in, the, in, this, uh, in this section of Ephesians, is this. Through the blood of Christ, strangers are brought near. Through the blood of Christ, strangers are brought near. Now, although this is Paul first mentions this in verse 13, I've left it till the end because he brackets it off by mentioning it again in verse 18. Strangers being brought near. Again, a double reconciliation going on here. Brought near to one another by, be, by being brought near to God. Just as spokes in a wheel, as they become closer to the hub of the wheel, get closer uh, uh, together uh, themselves, just as if I were to take a piano in my home, one of the old-fashioned ones, not a a modern digital one, old-fashioned piano in my home and in your home, how could I be sure they're both in, in tune together by taking the same tuning to the same tuning fork? Uh, they would be not in tune with that tuning fork and therefore in tune with one another. Just so uh, God has, in bringing us to himself in Christ, brought us together, Jews and Gentiles and all other divisions encompassed in that as well. Now there will be further conclusions to be had to all of this. Do you see how the very first word of verse 19 is consequently? 
But I'm going to have to leave that because that's for Alex Russell to speak about next Sunday evening. But I am very impressed that uh, when we get to the more practical chapters of, uh, of Ephesians, Paul is very much picking up and practically applying all of this teaching about reconciliation. Just glance with me, please, uh, to chapter 4, where there's a lot about God's work of, practical work of reconciliation amongst people, especially within the church. And if you would just glance at the very last verse of chapter 4, where Paul says, very practical uh, counsel here, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There are these links backwards and forwards between the doctrine which we are to understand and remember and cherish and the practical outworking of that, of which Paul will have much to say in the later chapters of this great letter. But so, but I just have two points, uh, nevertheless, in conclusion. And the first is this. God loves reconciliation, and so therefore so should we. God loves reconciliation, and so should we. As God's renewed people, we can model a spirit of reconciliation both inside and outside the church. And this can begin, can it not, with very simple things. Being more careful about what we say about others behind their backs. Being more willing to act as intermediaries when two friends or two colleagues fall out. Being more ready to forgive and to forget rather than to harbour a grudge. Yes, indeed, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We can do that, and in doing so, be fulfilling, as it were, the law of Christ. But now my second uh, concluding point is this. My second and last concluding point is this. God is now reconciling all things to himself, and we can be a part of that. God is now at work reconciling all things to himself, and we can be a part of that. We look out, don't we, on a world wrapped with the pain of hostility and alienation. And God's plan is not simply for improvement, but for transformation. God is working his purpose out according to the counsel of his will. Back to chapter 1 and verse 10. His purpose to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. By God's grace, we can not only believe in that plan, but also be, you and I, part of that fulfilment. On God's side, the entire resources of the Trinity have been mobilized to bring us to him and to bring us together in him. Do You see in verse 18, a wonderful Trinitarian verse. For through Christ, we both, Gentiles and Jewish believers alike, We both have access to the Father by one spirit. And as for us, God has entrusted to us the good news, the gospel, which Paul elsewhere calls the word of reconciliation, and entrusted to us the ministry of the gospel, what Paul elsewhere calls the ministry of reconciliation. Let us pray to God that he would, by his his grace, make us not only reconciled, but also reconcilers. Amen.